Tracy Smothers, Harley Race, Tim Storm, Bushwhacker Luke, Bobby Fool. The Pro, Pro Wrestling Vault, Volume 1. One. Bill Dundee, Super Mex Hernandez, C.W. Anderson, Ricky Morton, Sir Moe, and many others share their stories of determination, triumph, and, and sorrow. sorrow. Get your book today at Russellville.com or at Amazon.com. Russellville, Wrestling Have you ever wondered what happened to Lance Von Erich? Find out in his book, Lance by Chance, Wrestling as a Von Erich. You'll read stories about Chris Adams, Ric Flair, and Billy Jack Haynes. And of course, the Von Erich family themselves. Get your book today on Amazon. This is Herb Simmons from Southern Illinois Championship Wrestling, and you're listening to Russellville Podcast, where wrestling lives forever. You're listening to the Russellville Podcast. I'm your host, Vinny Berry, and my guest to this episode is Herb Simmons, wrestling promoter from the Southern Illinois Championship Wrestling. How are you doing today, Herb? Hi, Vinny. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on tonight to talk about some uh, good old days of wrestling. Um, you know, I'm from the uh, the Midwest here in uh St. Louis, Illinois, right outside of downtown St. Louis, Missouri. And, uh, you know, that was the home of professional wrestling for many, many years. Why was that? I mean, is it, I always thought that uh, Missouri and St. Louis was the hotbed because Harley Race was from that area. It, am I right in that thinking? Yeah, you know, each of the promotions over the years uh, when the territories was uh, up and running and there was uh, so many of them, uh, everybody claimed that their territory was a hotbed of professional wrestling. But here in St. Louis, we really had the claim to that because of Sam Muchnick, uh, who was uh, the president of the National Wrestling Association uh, Alliance, uh, uh, the NWA, uh, off and on for over 41 years. And his office was here in St. Louis and uh, um, all of the uh, big attractions always wanted to come to St. Louis and wrestle in the beautiful ballroom of the Chase Park Plaza Hotel, the Coruscant Room. And uh, all the greats that are still with us and even the ones that have left this always said that you hadn't made it in the big time in wrestling unless you wrestled in St. Louis for Sam Muchnick. Harley Race was also from here, though. Of course, Harley was a Harley was big wherever he went. Right. Absolutely. If you could kind of give us a, a time frame so my audience can kind of understand what, what era of uh, wrestling we're talking about. So when was Sam very active in the, in the business? He was, he was act, active, you know, uh, in the forties, uh, uh, but he started the wrestling program on uh, television out of St. Louis in 1959. And it ran on television until 1983. And uh, uh, the quick story on that is him and the owner of the uh, local television independent station back then, uh, KPLR TV Channel 11, made that arrangement on an airplane ride. Uh, sketched it out on a, a little napkin and uh, on a handshake. And there was a marriage uh, farm then. Uh, Sam had the talent, the wrestlers, and uh, Mr. Coppler had the uh, – uh, television station and, and they put together uh, a, a program that is still talked about to this day. In fact, just uh, 
this last month, we a documentary was done that we were part of uh, on the local uh, uh, public service access PBS channel uh, nine out of St. Louis and it, all across the country. It was there called Head Over Heels uh, Wrestling at the Chase. And it's getting great reviews. And of course, uh, there's been two books written on wrestling at the chase. One, my dear late friend, Larry Matasek, who was Sam much Nick's protege uh, from the time he was 16 years old uh, and went to work for Sam. He wrote a book about uh, 18, 19 years ago, wrestling at the chase that I helped him with. And then just recently, an author named uh, Mr. Ed Wheatley out of the St. Louis area wrote the uh, wrestling at the chase uh, book. And um um, it's, it's great reviews, great books. So, uh, I'm plugging them because, uh, if you want to know the history about, uh, wrestling, uh, in St. Louis, the, the, the documentary head over heels, uh, is a way to uh, start that uh, journey. Tell me and tell my listeners, you know, what made that wrestling promotion so special Herb? Well, I think the, uh, the one thing, as I said, sandwich Sam Muchnick's reputation in the business was a man of integrity, uh, honesty. The men and women that worked for him loved him to the fact that uh, he never sharded anybody on their pay. Uh, if the payoff was uh, you ended up with, uh, you know, uh, uh, $500 and 83 cents. Uh, when you got your envelope, it was the 83 cents was in there also. Uh, there was none of the stuff that uh, you heard other uh horrified stories well i'll catch you at the next uh, show uh you know the the gate was light uh but sam uh sam was just a man of integrity honesty uh he ruled with a firm hand uh, you know we, we he was referred to as the peacekeeper because back in the day when territories were up and running and there were so many of them across the country you know sam controlled that uh nwa title as far as where it would be defended and where, you know, who would have it basically. And, and you'd have promoters that would uh, get into a little squabble over it. And Sam would have to either bring them to St. Louis and have a sit down meeting or, you know, he'd call them on the phone and say, let's knock this stuff off. We got to do what's best for one, the fans and what's best for the business. Back then when the NWA title did travel, did it travel consistently around the United States or did it, did it stop in certain territories because of the financial gain for the, the organization? Yeah, it basically, like I said, wherever uh, it was uh, needed, of course, you know, a lot of the places wouldn't just bring it in, as we would say, cold turkey. You know, it had to mean something. You know, it's not like nowadays, uh, you know, there's matches that make no sense whatsoever when that NWA title was defended it was the real deal it was you know a uh, uh dory funk jr against the jack briscoe or uh, gene kaniski against the fritz von eric uh guys that you know that could really go out there and uh and just tear the roof off of a place but uh they would build up to that match you know uh, they would have um here in st louis they would use their uh tv program to build up to one of those big houses and, um, you know, put, uh, you know, anywhere from eight to 12,000 people in the Kiel auditorium on a Friday night, but that was built up, you know, on a, a weekly basis, you know, uh, how you build the storyline and, and Sam was so good at that, you know, uh, he knew what the fans wanted and he, he made, he made sure they got it. 
Well, that was about 14 years old. I went to my very first wrestling match in Dallas, Texas, and it was 1983. I was uh, supposed to see Ric Flair defend his title to Kevin Von Erich, and Ric Flair was on the program. However, I guess a few days prior or even a week prior to that event, the title changed hands to Harley Race. And I got to see Harley race. I guess my first initial thought was I wanted to see Ric Flair, but now I can say, you know what? I got to see Harley race in action and it was an amazing, amazing match. And, and that was the only time I got to see him in person. And um, he was something special for sure. Well, and yeah, Harley was uh, one of the greatest of all times. And uh, I, over the years, I had the uh, pleasure and the honor of working with him, uh, promoting him and bringing him in on different shows and uh, just uh, an all out guy that uh, loved the business and did uh, whatever he could to better the business. And, you know, back in the day, these guys, the traveling was such a wear and tear on them. Everybody thinks, well, yeah, the getting in that squared circle was a wear and tear on their bodies. But I tell you, the traveling was also, you know, when you uh, jump in a car and have to drive three, 400 miles in one night to get to the next show and get done there and drive another 200 miles to the next show. And, you know, you're working 30, 45 days straight in a row away from your family. Uh, there was no uh, hopping on an airplane flying around back then. It was all road trips. Right, right. And, you know, one story that I always remember hearing the very first Starcade when uh, Harley Race was defending the title to Ric Flair on Thanksgiving night mm -hmm. uh, in 1983, I believe it was. And right. supposedly Harley drove through a blizzard or drove for a couple of days in very bad weather just to get there. Do you have you heard this story? Oh, yeah. And, and, and those there's there's hundreds and hundreds of stories that you can hear from the uh, guys out there because they were dedicated. It was their, it was their living back then. Uh, you know, if they didn't, they didn't show up, they didn't get paid. And uh, yeah, drive through snowstorms, uh, uh, tornadoes, uh, you know, a car is breaking down on them and, you know, having to call somebody else and say, Hey, if you haven't passed this spot up, pick me up on the way. But they, they knew that that was the way they got paid. And when you had people like uh, Harley Race or Fritz Von Erich, you know, Johnny Valentine, they knew what it meant to get to those towns because uh, the last thing you want to do is have a promoter not book you anymore because you were a no-show. Promoters didn't care. They expected you to be there because that's what they've advertised. And um, so they tell you, you know, heck or high water, I need you here, especially if you're in that main event. Now, if you're the curtain jerker, yeah, it's a little different. But when you're that main event, uh, like a Harley race, uh, you know, or a Funk or a Briscoe back in the days, or like I said, Johnny Valentine, Gene Kaniski, Bob Ellis, those are the guys that, that the main event had to go on. And there are stories that I know of personally where they uh, that main event would be walking in five minutes before the main event was starting because, you know, the car broke down and they had to catch a, a ride. And But they got in there, got in the dressing room and, uh, out of breath just to get down to the ring uh, to make sure everything stayed on time. Right. And then the difference back then were, you know, the road system is not what it is today. And the telephone system is not what it is today either. So, you know, 
I'm sure a lot of promoters were were sweating bullets because they they may not have been able to to get in contact with their wrestler. Well, yeah, because you know, cell phones. There was social media was nothing. Nobody knew anything about social media back then. You didn't couldn't text. Uh, like you said, the phone systems wasn't. You you had to find a pay phone somewhere, a phone booth somewhere outside the road at a gas station or somewhere. But uh, it's amazing how these guys were able to do it. But you know what? For many years they did it because it was the way they fed their families. It was the way they survived, paid their bills, and uh, you know we we joke around now. Uh, uh, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. runs my Ace Wrestling Academy for me, and we talk all the time about it. You know how the road was. You know, and, you know, uh, and even later on in his career, when they were doing a lot of flying, you know, he'd be uh, he'd he'd open a card up uh, for events in Chicago and turn around and be the main event in California. You know that night, and uh, but again, you know, you're jumping on jets and you're you're doing it, but. Back then, it was, hey, can I pile on a car? You know, we carpools. You know, we we think about carpooling nowadays. They were carpooling way back before us, before now, I can tell you. Tell us the story how you were introduced to professional wrestling, how that all came about and became to, to love it like you did. Yeah, basically the same way as you and everybody else, uh, your listeners of listening to this program, I guarantee you they all got uh, hooked on it just like I did. Uh, the difference is, is I was fortunate to meet a gentleman by the name of Larry Matasek, who lived in the uh, same county that I did. And he was involved at a young age. He started uh, working for Sam Wichnick when he was 16 years old. Uh, he used to uh, write articles on wrestling while he was in school. I mean, that's how hooked he was on it. And uh, he would send uh, different write-ups that he would to Sam and uh, Sam would uh, read them. And one day Sam uh, called him and said, not knowing that he was 16 years old, he thought he was, you know, because Larry had the act of writing even at a young age and uh, he didn't even have a driver's license. And his father had to actually drive him over to the meeting uh, to meet Sam Muchnick for the first time. And uh, Sam kind of took a liking to him right off the bat. And he got his first paycheck from Sam Muchnick, which was $25. And uh, he would write uh, some of the articles on the upcoming matches. And uh, he swept the office floors and uh, answered phones and uh, just became uh, Sam's uh, uh, jack of all trade. And then, of course, I had the honor of making some of them trips to the office with him and sitting there when people like uh, Whipper Billy Watson or uh, Fritz von Erich would be in town and be sitting in the office. Uh, and Sam always told us, you know, what's, what's, uh, what's uh, said in this office stays in this office. Uh, he opened up his file cabinets to us. He always said, you can go through them, which I have a lot of those records now that Larry had left me. Uh, but he always said, you know, nothing leaves this office. I've got all the cards, uh, index cards of every uh, wrestler that's ever wrestled in St. Louis, whether it be at the house shows or on television of their win or loss records. Wow. I've got uh, the tapes from the uh, TV uh, uh, show that they did, along with uh, a, a library of Dick the Bruiser's TV uh, tapes. It was uh, everybody says, man, would you would you do anything different if you could? No, I, I've loved every bit of it. Um, like I said, sitting there listening to uh, people like Dory Funk Jr. being in there, 
and, and got to meet all the greats, you know, Jack Briscoe, his brother, Jerry Briscoe, who I'm still good friends with. But uh, the first time I met Sam was at the horse race track. He used to like to go out to the steakhouse at the uh, uh, ponies. And uh, Larry had told him that I wanted to learn more about the business. And he thought at first I wanted to be a wrestler. And I said, no, no, there's no way. <laughs> I'm smarter than that. I'm not going to take those bumps, you know. And I said, no, I'd like to learn the more the inside and behind the scene and the booking and stuff of that sort. And we were sitting there and he was cutting up a steak. Uh, that he, he always loved to eat steak and he had that steak knife and he said uh, you know he said you you keep these open and this shut and you'll go a long way in this business and uh, uh, this coming February will be my 50th year of, of promoting and being in the business from back when I first met Sam and so I think I've done a good job of taking his advice because uh, I get along with all of the guys that are in the business and I can call them and say hey I need you to come in for this or that and uh, uh, they know that uh, I'm a chip off the old block of Sam Legendary. And 50 years is a long time. Yeah, it's uh, and I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of promoters come and go, a lot of organizations. You know, some guys wake up one morning and say, hey, I want to be in the wrestling business. And they, they go buy a ring. And uh, But it's a lot more than that. You know, I, I, I use the analogy of it's just like baking a cake. You got to have all the ingredients. And it starts off with, with you know, you got to have that location, destination. Most of all, you've got to have great talent and then you got to have great fans. And if you've got all three of them, then the cake will rise to the top and then come out. But so many uh, promotions that I've seen come and go have ego problems. They think they want to be the next Vince McMahon. And, you know, I get joked about that all the time. You know, well, you, you're going to be Vince McMahon's replacement. No, never thought of it. Never dreamt about that. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just come along with that attitude and, and they only last about six months. But uh, I will uh, continue uh, as long as the good Lord's willing, uh, doing what I've been doing, learn from the best. Like I said, Sandwich, Nick, Larry, Matasek, and, uh, and then other guys. My good friend, uh, Bruiser Brody, uh, taught me so much about this business. Uh, and introduced me to so many of the all-time greats. And uh, uh, I'll never forget, uh, that's why I do a Bruiser Brody Memorial every year in honor of him. His wife comes in and partic uh, participates in that every year. We do that in May. And uh, I always try to bring in one of the legends that are still with us to kind of honor him. Yeah, Bruiser Brody was, was another very special talent in the business. Boy, did he make you believe. Well, that was it. Uh, you know, guys uh, like him uh, only come around once in a lifetime. And uh, uh, he had that size. He had the ability, like you said, to make him believe. And, you know, he always said, you know, kind of like with Johnny Valentine, he used to say, I may, I may not be able to make you believe wrestling is real, but uh, I can make you believe I am. And when they went out there, you believed it. You, you grown up in that Texas area, I'm sure you saw him there uh, with the Fritz and uh, when he took on the one man gang or he took on Kamala, you know, uh, those guys, that was a battle. And, uh, you know, when I would have Kamala up here and Brody and uh, Dick Murdoch and people like that fans come because they knew they were going to see the real deal. Yeah. I've seen him fight uh, Abdullah, Kamala, um, Jeep Swinson, you know, big, big guys, you know, and, and yeah, they were, you know, just amazing, amazing matches. I've seen him fight the Freebirds too. And, you know, he was just one of those guys that, uh, 
you know, he had a, 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 just a very strong presence and uh, just uh, the believability was off the charts. And he was, uh, he was just, uh, <laughs> he was just amazing, right? He, he, well, and he was one of those, one of the few, I was the first independent promoter that he worked for on the independent circuit. And uh, that's when he realized that, hey, there's there's some money to be made out there doing these independent shows. And so that's when he, you know, he, he was coming into St. Louis before that. But then Larry Matasek and I was running the and, and I, I, I hate using the word independent because, as I tell some of the workers, you know, that the states that regulate the business, you know, it says professional wrestler. It doesn't say independent wrestler. But that's what it's always been deemed on our level as independent. You know, we wasn't affiliated with the NWA or any of the other bigger federations, but we were the first independent uh, organization that he worked for. And then that's how he introduced me to people like uh, Nard the Barbarian, Abdullah the Butcher, uh, Killer Tim Brooks. You know, uh, he would put me in touch with them and then I would arrange for them to come in and uh, be against him or against uh, somebody else. And uh, like I said, I owe everything to three men. Then you see the right the way you don't you see them, but the fans don't. But there's a picture of Sam Much, Nick, Larry Matasek, and Bruiser Brody. Uh, those are life size photos that I have of them because I owe everything that I've done in this business uh, to the people that they've introduced me to and, and the advice that they gave me all the, those years. And uh, I I will never ever forget them. I understand that. I I do. I. You know, um, when we were we were talking about Bruiser Brody, um, there's so many people who I've talked to that have so many Bruiser Brody stories. You know, personally, I don't have any Bruiser Brody stories, but golly, I've talked to so many people in the business that, you know, have one story after another, you know, and uh, just about uh, maybe matches or advice that they gave him or, uh, you know, they took him, uh, you know, he took them under his wing. So yeah, he's definitely have, he, he has a, a huge place in wrestling history and, and I think always, always will. Well, I got one of the, and I've had a lot of highlights in the business. I mean, I've done shows that were nobody else has ever done them. This uh, fabulous Fox theater in St. Louis, Missouri, where the stars uh, come to perform. Uh, the only locally produced show, wrestling show, was there. I was part of that with Larry Matasek. Bruiser Brody was on that card. Uh, you know, the Fairmont Park racetrack, horse racing track. Bruiser Brody was on that card. Uh, a lot of those places. But one of the highlights that I had in my career, I had uh, Bruiser uh, Frank uh, in for a card, and we had Luthez in on the same card. And I'm sure Luthez is another name you probably heard of. Uh, if you haven't, there your listeners haven't. That just uh, Google Luthez and you'll hear about the greatest. And uh, but they were shooting an angle in Japan uh, where Frank was a god over there. Bruiser Brody was a god there, and, and so was Lou. And uh, so we had uh, Brody on a card at the uh, Belclair Fairgrounds in Belleville, Illinois, over in Illinois, uh, in the area I live in, and. Uh, that afternoon, uh, he had asked if they could use the building. They didn't want nobody else there, no fans or anything. 
and they were going to do some workouts. And so Larry Matasek and I, along with two reporters from uh, Japan, uh, photographers, was the only ones in the building. And we got to sit there for an hour and a half at ringside and watched Bruiser Brody and Luthez work in the ring against one another. And I mean, what a treat that was. Uh, I'll never forget after that hour and a half, I watched Luthez take a uh, metal folding chair and he pushed it back up against the wall and did 160 push-ups off of that chair. This is after being in the ring with Bruiser Brody for an hour and a half. Wow. And he went back to get, uh, get cleaned up and uh, Brody was sitting there and Larry asked him, he said, man, how was it to be in there with that old, old guy? And Brody says, I'm going to tell you what, when he gets a hold of your arm, it's not uh, if you're going, it's where you're going. He said, because he just drugged me all over that ring. And uh, he had a lot of respect for Luthez and Lou had a lot of respect for, for uh, Brody. Back in the day, Lou was the man. Everybody wanted Luthez. And, you know, uh, you know, when Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, another old time name that some of your listeners probably remember, uh, you know, and, it, and that all became uh, a problem, what we call the politics in the business. Back in the day uh, when uh, when a champion didn't want to go along with, with uh, what a promoter wanted uh, a guy like Luthez uh, would be called in. And uh, that's why if, if you ever want to read a book, uh, it's called The Hooker by Luthez. Uh, it tells some of those stories in there when when uh, they tried to uh, take the strap off of Rogers and he kept on uh, no-showing at some of the events. And they ended up uh, setting up a deal where he thought he was going against another worker and when he got in the ring, uh, here come a guy walking down the aisle with a hood on and a robe. And underneath that hooded robe was uh, Luthez. And they're standing in the middle of the ring with the referees and their seconds back then. And Lou stuck his hand out and said, we'll either do this the easy way or the hard way. And uh, and that's the night that title changed hands again. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, stories like that, the politics and the business, uh, there's all kinds of those stories out there. Uh, and that, that's where I said, there's a little word out there that I use to this day that a lot that, that causes those problems. And it's called, called ego. Uh, when some of these guys let their ego, uh, get bigger than what they really are, that's what happens. And it, that was the same thing back then, uh, guys would get a taste of it and, uh, thought that they could get, get by on their own and they didn't need a promoter to help them. And, uh, and that's how those type of things happen. What? What was so special about Lou? You know, you you talked about him wrestling Bruiser Brody. I would say contrast in styles, right? But, you know, for the NWA to put the title on him uh, so many times, you know, he had to be special, right? He had to be yeah. good. He had to be, you know, dependable. He had to be a lot of things. What was What were the qualities that you saw in Luthez? Well, when I saw him, you know, later on in life, other than because he never wrestled for me, I used him for special guest referees. And to me, he was just as valuable as that as if I'd had him wrestling to, to say I had the former world heavyweight champion, Luthez, being a special guest referee in a match, sold tickets. And, and that's what all the promoters in the country and around the world, when you had a guy like Luthez who had a career that he had, 
and took on the all anybody out there, never backed down from anybody, uh, could out wrestle anybody. Uh, he could, he was a good technical wrestler. He was a good, uh, if you wanted to brawl, he'd brawl with the best of them. Uh, but you're right. He was, uh, he was honest. Uh, he, uh, he knew how to keep the promoters happy. And that was by showing up, um, uh, and, and doing his job. But as far as his ability to work, I mean, the guy was a very good technical wrestler, but like I said, he could, he could tie you up and, and hold you down if you wanted to, and there's nothing you could do about it. But, uh, you know, guys like him and Ed Strangler Lewis, uh, just great technical wrestlers that, that back when wrestling was wrestling and, uh, Lou was a part of that, that era that, that, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't the bodybuilding and all that stuff. It was just good technical wrestling, but you want to fight, you want to, you want to get a little tough, Lou could do it. You know, and there were so many of them guys like that, you know, Pat O'Connor, uh, another one that, uh, to me, I think was one of the underrated guys out there, but, but he could go out there and go and, uh, here, especially in St. Louis. Right. And when you, when you say Luthez or, or, uh, Pat O'Connor, I think of Danny Hodge too, that to, oh, throw, yeah. to throw in that yeah. pot, you know, your heavyweight title, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to shake hands with Danny, but, uh, uh, I saw him, uh, squeeze apples, uh, break flowers. Uh, and, uh, the guy was just down to earth and could work, uh, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Danny was, uh, you know, one of, one of the greats also, you know, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is it that you love so much about professional wrestling herb? I mean, for you to be in it for as many years as you have, I mean, you gotta love it. It's it's got to be a passion of yours. Tell me what that is. It's an addiction to me. Uh, like I said, I started off at a young age. I, I grew up in the housing projects in East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, and back in the summer months, and this time in the you know the year that June, July, August, uh, we didn't have air conditioning, and we lived in the apartment complex, and we had a little black and white twelve-inch television set and uh back then wrestling used to be rebroadcasted on wednesday nights and so my mom and i and my mom was a big wrestling fan also uh, she uh, despised people like fritz von eric or killer kowalski uh people like that uh and i used to get a kick out of her at a young age uh, when she just you know be shouting at that little 12 and and we would take that little black and white 12 inch tv and set it outside in the backyard run an extension card out there plug it in and then the neighbors from the housing project would come over and sit around and we'd have a little metal mop bucket there and we would put some rags in there with some oil and light it to keep the mosquitoes away from us because we were going to watch wrestling come neck or high water and uh but back then you know so many of the greats john paul henning uh was a great guy uh, in st louis that i like red bastine who I ended up a couple of years ago receiving the Red Bastine Award at the Cauliflower Alley, which I kind of thought was uh, ironic. He was one of my fra- favorites growing up. Or, you know, you had the flying Frenchman, Edouard Carpentier. Uh, so I got hooked on it at a very, very early age. And then what just put the icing on the cake was when I became friends with Larry Matasek. And then all of a sudden, he starts taking me to the office. He starts taking me to the Kiel Auditorium to the wrestling at the chase and i'm sitting there in the control room watching him the uh directors uh, put those tapes together it was just intriguing how that happened and i thought you know 
I, back then I thought it was simple. I thought, man, anybody could do this, but man, I found out real quick, it kind of takes an art to do that, to tell those stories and uh, the matchmaking part of it. Uh, so yeah, I, I've been hooked, uh, from an early age. I mean, and I go back to the big Bill Miller and Dan Miller, you know, when Bill Miller was wrestling under a hood as the Crimson Knight in St. Louis, or when Fritz von Erich, like I said, would come in or Dick the Bruiser, you know, the most dangerous the wrestler in the business as he's always been referred to. It just kind of always intrigued me about it, you know, and, and, and I'm still, I, I still do to this day, you know, and, uh, I hope I get to carry it on until uh, until I get called to go to the big ring in the sky. Who are the wrestlers on on your Mount Rushmore? Or if you could pick four of the NWA World Heavyweight Champions, that's a it's really hard for me to answer that. I bet it is for you too. Oh, I've had uh, I've had that question asked to me so many times I can't count them. But because I've got to work with so many of them. Um, Greg Gagne uh, had been working on a project uh, over the last couple of years of building some of these action figures in a Mount Rushmore. And, you know, he had called me and asked me the same thing. And, but I mean, when you talk about the, the ones that I've met, Luthez would have to be definitely one of them. Larry Matasek did a, a book of the top 50 wrestlers of all time. And, uh, you know, people said, well, what about Ric Flair? Well, Maybe in some people's mind, Ric Flair is, but I don't think he would be on my Mount Rushmore. But, you know, you'd surely have to look at uh, Jack Briscoe for me. But wrestling, you got to remember, was so territorial back in the days, all across the country. Uh, I mean, and a guy who was in St. Louis for six months or a year, and then he'd go to Texas and Fritz would have him down there for six months or a year or until... They, uh, they, they used him up and then they'd ship him someplace else. So I got to see so many of them. I mean, some of the guys out of the Memphis, Tojo Yamamoto worked for me quite a bit. Gypsy Joe, Frank Morrell, um, uh, people like that. But, you know, that Mount Rushmore, I mean, you know, I like the guys like, you know, uh, Baron Von Roschke did a lot of work for me, made appearances. And recently as you know, a year, year and a half ago, I had him in. But, you know, how do you overlook, uh, you know, guys like Johnny Valentine, uh, who was just a, a bull in there. And, and uh, a lot of the guys said he was tough, you know. But, yeah, it would be it would be definitely hard for me to pick a Mount Rushmore uh, to try to be Bruiser Brody. I mean, he'd definitely be on my Mount Rushmore without a doubt, just because of personal, you know, I had a good business relationship with him and it was going to be bigger. Uh, but. We all know what happened in 1988, uh, and I actually got out of it for about a year after that because uh, uh, Brody and I and Larry was uh, looking at another venture, and, uh, and and not just because of that. It's just because it was such a terrible, terrible thing. He was actually with us the weekend before that terrible time in 1988. Uh, we had a uh, uh, event in uh, here in Illinois, and uh, you know, seven days later, he's gone. Golly, I've heard so many stories of Van Van Horn share a story with me that that uh, he was uh, in a tag team and they were they painted their face and uh, Brody was booking them in St. Louis. They had some matches against the Fantastics, but 
Brody wanted to take them to Japan because baseball was big and wrestling was big over there. And they, Van Van Horn and his partner kind of dressed up like the, uh, I don't know if you remember the Warriors, but there was a gang in there that they painted their face like that too. And they kind of were a knockoff of them. Well, Brody wanted to take them to, uh, Brody wanted to take them to Japan. And he was like, get your passports ready, uh, get everything in order, and uh, we'll take care of that, you know, because he really thought they were going to do big over there. Well, Brody ended up dying in Puerto Rico, and that never came to fruition. And, you know, so many guys have, have their own story of of that, of, of Brody and and kind of like you know uh you know even uh black bart tells a story that he bruce brody called him to go go wrestle auto wants and uh in germany because brody was scheduled to wrestle him and he needed Black Bart to take his spot because he was going to be in Puerto Rico a little longer than he expected. And then when Black Bart went over there, took care of the match for him, um, came back and found out Bruiser Brody's fate. So there's so many stories. There's got to be, you know, as many stories as there's wrestlers who who were impacted by that that incident and golly we probably haven't even heard them all well and you're right there's so many stories and so many theories but there's only uh, a few people that know the story uh that and will it ever be told um we'll see is all i can say i get asked that question all the time and uh i get people asking me uh, when you're going to write a book and i say well if, if you know, I, I, I leave that to the uh, professionals. Uh, but um, if I did, that would definitely be one of the chapters in it. And uh, because I think uh, Barbara, uh, his wife, uh, you know, that's that was in 1988. And she still will tell you to this day, she gets goosebumps when she comes in or, you know, she's out making appearances herself. Now we got her out uh, because his name is still so well known wherever she goes uh, uh, I mean, uh, we'll be up in Waterloo, Iowa at the Fez uh, Tragus Hall of Fame uh, in July. And then we go to Vegas in September for the Cauliflower Alley. And she'll be with us. And she'll tell you when that chant of Brody, Brody, Brody starts, uh, it gives her goosebumps because, you know, here we are all these years later. And the fans and what she really finds um, interesting is, is the young generation that comes up and gets an autograph and wasn't even born back in 1988, uh, but has researched what Bruiser Brody's uh, career was. And here they are, they're, they're wanting to get a signature, uh, an autograph of his uh, widow. And, and, you know, they'll stand there and say, Oh, we, we watched him on YouTube when he was taking on this guy or that guy. And, oh, he was such a monster. And, and that's the, that is the everlasting effect that he's left on the fans. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he was a, a larger than life wrestler. And, you know, if you got to see him in person or 
or on television. You know, he he just left this impact that I mean, he was one of those wrestlers that no matter who you saw him in the ring with, you were going to remember that you saw Bruiser Brody. Oh yeah, and there's you know there's been others that have tried to gimmick yourself after him, but as I said, you know, uh, there will never be a duplication of, of Bruce Brody. That, that mold was broken long ago. It was in 1988. That was, that was was when the mold was broken, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. It, uh, it won't be, uh, won't be another one like him. Uh, but like I said, he, he's left a legacy and, uh, and every time, uh, we get the chance. In fact, I've got uh, uh, two of my three uh, four-legged friends I have. Uh, one is a Belgium Malinois, and the other one is a German Shepherd. And one's name is Bruiser, and the other one's name's Brody. What a way to just uh, remember him, right? Uh, on see, a daily, see him on, every day. You <laughs> see him every day. Well, Herb... It has been a pleasure talking to you. I would like to bring you back and, and talk to you a little bit about the, the St. Louis uh, Wrestling uh, Hall of Fame, if you if you would like to come back and do that with me. Um, but I would I would like to wrap this up. And I thank you so much for your your time uh, doing this episode with me. And and uh, it's been a, a pleasure and, and just a, a wonderful walk down memory lane. So thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the job you do of helping keep uh, the uh, business alive. It's it's uh, programs like yours that lets us old timers go out there and talk about some of the all time greats. Because I tell everybody, I only continue to build on the foundation. It the Bruiser Brodies and the Luthezes and Sam Muchnick and them all built. Uh, uh, if you're in the business today, you're just building on that foundation. Well, thank you very much for everything that you have done, and thank you for everything that you continue to do. Fine. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Russellville podcast where wrestling lives. Tracy Smothers, Harley Race, Tim Storm, Bushwhacker Luke, Bobby Fool. The Pro, Pro Wrestling Vault, Volume one. 1, Bill Dundee, Super Mix Hernandez, C.W. Anderson, Ricky Morton, Sir Moe, and many others share their stories of determination, triumph, and, and sorrow. sorrow. Get your book today at Russellville.com or at Amazon.com. Russellville, Wrestling PWC Podcast with Rick Del Santo. For all your wrestling reviews, interviews, and news, Rick covers the United Wrestling Network, the NWA, and the Northeast region of the United States Independence. PWC, 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 PWC,